1971. My name is Tom McNown. I'm leading on the oral history of British coaching, which spans from the post-war period to the present day. I'd like to introduce Carol Jackson. Carol's one of a rare breed of coaches who go beyond simply their technical ability and their ability to motivate athletes. Uh, she's what I call a creative coach, a developmental coach who grows the sport as well as simply growing inside the sport. And I started off by asking her, what exactly makes a great coach? Empathy with your athletes. Athlete first, coach second. You don't want to do it for yourself. I think that makes you a great coach. The ability to explain in great detail in a million different ways how to do something, increase knowledge, a love of the event, and it doesn't have to be at top level. You can be a great coach and still work with youngsters. How many years, Carl, have you been involved now in athletics? My dad worked for Glaxo and it was actually at their sports day and we used to run every year. I remember clearly going down one day and it was a grass track at the factory where my dad worked. Janet Simpson was running. So that was probably the first time that I got involved in knowing what elite athletics was all about. Well, that's interesting. And that's a period that's vanished, isn't it, Carol? That companies used to hold meetings at their own recreation grounds. I competed every year at Glaxo Sports until I was about probably in my early 20s. We moved down to Greenford and they held a very good competition there. But there were always prizes there. I mean, I literally had everything that I needed for my first house from what I'd won at competitions. Oh, that's remarkable. The same is true in Scotland. At the Ranger Sports, the big one, big prize was 10 guineas. It was a couch. It was a chair. And everybody was pushing for, to win that one, you know. And guys built their handicaps up over a long period of time, built them up by losing races. You were very lucky to get some good equipment. Most of the stuff I won was absolute junk. I say I equip my house. I mean things like irons and kettles and cutlery and crockery. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't furniture and things like that. I had a friend who did it with me, and we used to literally go and look at the prize table and say, we want to finish second in that, third in that. So that's where we would finish. It was hilarious. You took a much more sophisticated view of it than I did. Um, Carol, what was your experience of athletics in curricular athletics, really, being taught within a class at school? Having met Janet Simpson or seen Janet Simpson compete at the Glaxo Sports 12 months before, I actually moved down and she was my PE teacher. Only for a term, a couple of terms maybe, but... I have to say that it was all pretty much um, geared around what she wanted to do that day for her training, I think, if we were really honest. I don't remember doing field events. We did a lot of running around the road, which, of course, you wouldn't be allowed to do now. Yeah, Yeah, but, I mean, I loved it. Then we went to White City Stadium, which, of course, held lots of elite competitions there in those days. And then it just flowered from there. When did you first join the club then? I should think it was probably 1966. I joined Hillingdon Athletics Club, and by that time I was hooked onto the sport. Madeline Cobb was part of the club at that point, so, and Dave Henry, and Pat Price. Pretty good pedigree, and I started doing a number of events. What was an offer then at the club? We had a cinder track, 
which was 400 yards. Yeah, we had a high jump bed. I remember I never high jumped, but we had a high jump bed that was pretty much just bits of foam on top of one another. Coaching wasn't particularly brilliant, but I think it was more a social side of things in those days and the competitions. Uh, I remember going to competitions on a pretty much every weekend, getting on a coach at Ryslip Manor and being with the whole team. And we never worried about being out all day. That was just part and parcel of what athletics was all about. Yes, but time has changed, hasn't it? The demands on time are different now, and we've got to present a different way of doing it, haven't we? What brought you into, particularly into high jump? Was that your first event that you showed any interest in? No, I never, ever no. high jumped. Never in my life have I cleared a high jump bar. Good God. I was a long jumper, a failed athlete, really. I wasn't, I loved athletics, but I was the basic good team member that would do any event that you wanted me to, but for the points, never really was any good at anything. I taught PE. I went to PE college. I started training in 71 with Pat Price, who was an international hurdler, and went to lots of meetings and met lots of people, found that I was getting very hooked. Yeah. Started doing lots of different competitions just for the points for the club and then went to club coach at that point was a, a gentleman by the name of Eric Laxon who asked me one day if I would be interested in helping him out with a high jump group he'd got and he had been working with a guy two years earlier called Mark Naylor who'd gone to play basketball decided he didn't want a high jump and then he'd had a phone call from Mark saying I'd like to come back. And because he'd got four or five other athletes, he asked me if I would come in to help him out. I had no expertise in high jump at all. I was probably 21 at the time, 22 at the most. I'd just come out of PE college. I'd started a new job teaching in Northwood. And it was like, yeah, I can come down. It was twice a week. I tried to train, but of course, as a coach, you don't, you can't train and train coach at the same time it doesn't work you get too stiff and sore and everything else even at 21 so um i started coaching or assistant coach six weeks later mark broke the british record indoors at cosford uh with 211 and that was it that was me hook line and sinker into high jump and i've been in it good god yeah that's the most unusual entry to the event because most times it comes from doing it yourself doesn't it yeah i got a lot of criticism for it um, not in the early days when I was working with Eric, but when I branched out on my own. How can you coach high jump if you can't, if you've never done it yourself? Well, I know an awful lot of people who have, so I just ask for help. Yes. What were the things that drove your understanding of high jump at the time? I mean, where did you get your thoughts from, really? Eric was a brilliant mentor, and I learned an awful lot because the squad had four internationals in it. Eric gave me responsibility. I went to events, I went to coaching clinics, I went to the Ron Murray high jump workshops at Crystal Palace. In those days, we went out and found the people we could talk to. Yes, yes. You never stopped. Vividly remember doing my coaching award and I had to go to Enfield Track, Donkey Lane. I had to work for the whole day, and I mean the whole day, nine o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon. And that was my coaching assessment. And what year was that? Probably 77 or 78. And I did hundreds of tests as a national coach. 
And you know, none of them lasted <laughs> that length of time. I can tell you that much. I had a wonderful time. Yeah. I still remember it to this day. Yeah. Because it wasn't only an assessment. I think I learned an awful lot at the same time. Oh, that, that was good. That was an unusual experience. How did you, you, you develop beyond that over that period? And what were the major influences upon you in that development? I think it was Eric. Very certainly. Um, we had new athletes coming in. We always had athletes at the top. Youngsters who were the top of their age groups, three top internationals. We had the number one British woman. Mark continued to break British record after British record, took it from 2.11 to 2.25. And I think I just lapped off and soaked up everything that I could find. I went to meetings, competitions. I talked to people. I remember Eric taking me to, before Moscow, the national coach at the time who was, uh, Tom, you might help me out here. <laughs> Giles. Yeah, Kelvin Giles. How do I know these things? <laughs> <laughs> and he was holding a national get-together for coaches. They were all men. There were no other women, and there weren't any other women that I had any contact with for probably 35 years and even now female coaches are second class citizens I suppose would be fair to say I don't think that would be understating it to be honest we have very little respect even though I mean I've coached eight guys who've gone to world or European junior championships I coached the majority of the top athletes at the top as youngsters as under 20s that have represented Great Britain over the past 15 years. Yeah. It costs me a social life without a shadow of a doubt. And it probably has affected me for the whole of my life. In my 20s, I was totally committed to... Immersed, yeah. Yeah, to going with my athletes, all of them, wherever they went. And so I would regularly say, oh, I can't go out Saturday evening or I can't go out Friday evening because I've got to be in Cosford this time or back there. and it has affected me for the whole of my life. I was very lucky. I mean, I moved down from Ulverston, Barry and Furness. If I'd lived up there, I would not have been involved in athletics. There is an athletics track there now. Funnily enough, just after we moved down to London, they built one right outside my grandmother's house, which was quite hilarious. What do you feel about the quality of what you received relative to what seems to be available now? I think that's a really difficult question because I'm at a different level now. Oh, yes, but, I mean, you, you can still reflect on what has been delivered to people like you. We went out and looked. Because our coach education was limited, we went out and found our own. So we got experience from 100 people. You know, I probably gained from talking to you. I've gained from talking yeah. to Bruce Longdon. There were lots of people around that, you know, you would talk to as the years went on. I don't think coaches do that these days. That's interesting. I mean, what about the composition of clubs now, Carol? I mean, how is that different from what you faced back at Hillingdon? I think there are a lot more senior athletes in our day. Yes. But I think we all mucked in together. We had internationals in our team who went along to an open meeting or a trophy meeting, and we all did every event under the sun. There was a sense of community in clubs. You know, if there was a space, somebody would fill it. They would be sitting there cheering people on. The parents came. There were picnics on the side. We'd all go back on the bus and stop for a fish and chip supper on the way home. All sorts of things happened. 
there was more of a team culture in those days. How much did it cost you in those days to become a coach? I've no idea what it cost me, to be honest. I drove all over the country. I lived in Ripmans, was travelled to Uxbridge three, four times a week. Our subs weren't particularly high. Then I don't think athletic subs are particularly high now, certainly in relation to what we were paying in those days. And when did you start to move into the realm of meeting organiser? 1994. I talked for 21 years. Talked PE. Came up to Bedford as the athletics development officer in 91. And in 94, I met Phil Green. And he said, I've been asked to do an EAP meeting, European Athletic Promotion meeting. Can't run it at Harringay. Tracks dilapidated. Would you be interested in running it at Bedford? So I said, yes. Started organising it. Had one meeting and then I never saw him again. We ran that meeting in three weeks. From zero to finish. Um, We had two Commonwealth records set, 200 athletes. I was told it would never happen because we weren't paying athletes. But actually, everybody turned up. And I got so many people who came and said, thank you. Jackie Adjapong, for example, came up to me on that day and said, thank you very much for letting me run 100 metres because nobody else will. As a hurdler, they always wanted her to hurdle. So it gave the opportunity. We always said it, it was a meeting for the athletes. And, but you've developed considerably from there, Cal. That was the first shot at it. I mean, just describe how that's evolved over the years. It started as a one race in each event, and it just grew and grew. We ran relays in, I was reminded on Sunday, actually, I bumped into Christian Malcolm, and he reminded me that they'd run the qualifying time for the Athens relay at Biggish. We put a special race on for them. And they actually ran the qualifying time. And if they hadn't run it there, they wouldn't have been in Athens. So they would never have got the gold medal. Oh, I didn't. Oh, that's a good one. I, th- I think, you see, we talk a lot about coaching. But unless you have a decent quality of competition, not too far away, so you don't have to travel for, you know, hours to get to it. Coaching really yeah. comes into great difficulty. We developed over the years with a lot of work. People from Sweden over... The Scotland people came down, the Welsh people. We had most international athletes. We had some amazing performances. Adam Jamili ran the first sub-10, 100 metres outside a major competition in Great Britain. Brilliant high jump competitions, 225, 228 every year. And in 2015, I decided enough was enough. I'd done it for 21 years and it was just hard work. In 2016, I decided I would put some high jump competitions on. And then the stadium decided they were going to charge me for the whole stadium. So I rented a long jump pit and I rented a triple jump pit and I rented a throw circles out and it became known as Big-ish. So it wasn't big, it was Big-ish. Jumps and Throws Fest. And since that day, we have verging on 270, 280 athletes compete every year. It's getting bigger and bigger as we go, excuse the pun. This year, we had 192 entries in the first six days. But no, but it's interesting. An article today in, in, the, in the Times about American baseball, which is losing audiences. It takes too long. People don't watch, want to watch a meeting as long as, as baseball. And they produce a new version called Bananas. Now, don't ask me to explain what it is because I have no idea. I don't even know the rules of formal baseball. But do you feel that now I need to look again at even the events of athletics again? think about different ways in which we can present it. 
I'm a traditionalist, I'm afraid. I'm not into loud music and razzmatazz. I mean, I don't. <laughs> but it's quite interesting because we're only jumps and throws. We have coaches and, and spectators standing really close to our events because they can go on the track. So it's become more of a closed in group to see. High jump, for example, we have an area between the two beds so that people can stand and watch from both sides. Not that they're both going on at the same time, most of the time. People can learn from one another by hearing and the coaches are talking to one another. And that's really important to me as a meeting organiser. In the high jump, for example, we split them according to performance, PB, not according to male, female. And in at least three out of the five competitions, there is only a difference in the competition of 16 athletes yeah. of 10 to 12 centimetres. You don't have athletes hanging about. You don't start at 120 and go up to Morgan Lake jumping at 190. Well, that's interesting. You start at 175 and go up to Morgan Lake jumping at 190. Well, to be fair, I, there's no real negative on that, really, what you're saying. I don't see why the thing can both be an interesting spectacle and be attractive to the athletes. Is there anything else you wanted to finish off with, Carol, that, that I haven't covered? It's been a life in coaching. been a great life in coaching. I'd like to see more support for personal coaches going out to championships. I've been to eight championships, never been on a team, uh, never been a team coach. I've been a team leader on some of the smaller competitions, but never been a team coach. Never been to a major championship. So you don't learn what your athlete does in those major championships, in final call, doping afterwards, that sort of thing. And I think those experiences are really vital. I was once asked, what do you need three weeks after Dominic jumped 222? And I said, I don't need very much, but all I do need to do is to go to a major championship so that I can guide him on what he's going to do. Yeah. And I was told, not a chance. What you're really telling me is, of course, that once you detach the thing that you're there for, which is competing, from the equation, you're, you're missing a vital factor. You've got to see them in competition because that's what you're preparing them for. You're preparing to jump high under pressure, often in conditions that they're not used to, particularly the Olympics. If you don't know what those conditions are, I mean, I can have a guess, and I've been around long enough to know. Robbie walked out in Novisat, European Under-20 Championships, he went through final call, came out onto the arena and was in such a mood. He literally couldn't jump at all. He just kept stamping his foot on the ground and saying, this ground's too hard. I shouldn't be jumping on here. This is ridiculous. Now, I don't know what happened between I left him at first call and what happened when he came out on the arena. And I'll never know because I've never been in that scenario. There are areas that you need to learn to be able to prepare your athlete. I can prepare my athlete for competing, for food, for everything in the lead up to it. The only bit I'm missing is that bit there. And it's a very small bit, but it's a vital bit. What advice would you give? What lessons do you think, Carol, uh, what you've learned in the past have for us now in the present? I think we need to go to event-specific events. Whether it's a throws meeting or jumps meeting, a jumps and a throws, relays meeting, they're shorter. We go from 10.30 till 5. But, you know, there's competitions going on in each area all the time. We need to get back to 
educating our coaches on how to coach, how to coach the event and how to develop their own ideas on how to coach because I still go to conferences and workshops and what I did before lockdown and I would always learn something and I've been coaching nearly 50 years. Biggest influence on my coaching career as a high jumper, as a high jump coach, was a gentleman by the name of Wolfgang Killing, German national high jump coach, came to do a three-day workshop at Loughborough. We went through so many things and I can honestly say that that weekend changed my life in coaching. So many new ideas that came forwards, most of which I still use, but I went on the Friday and the Saturday, and then I stayed over to the Sunday. And I remember one of the coaches saying to me, why on earth are you staying for the third day? You've done it all. And I said, no, I haven't. I want to see this in practice. I was coaching Robbie Grabars at that point as a 16, 17 year old. Robbie came up on the Sunday and we did a lot of practical work with Wolfgang, did a lot of the ideas. Robbie and I went back on the Monday to our training session on the Monday evening at Bedford. And I remember saying to my group at the time, we're going to change everything. If you don't like it, go find another coach. And six weeks later, roughly, Robbie jumped to 22 as a 17 year old to top the world rankings. I believe that that was significant. And from that day on, we've sort of used a lot of the ideas and I've used it with all my other guys that got to good performances. I used it with Dominic Obechi, who jumped to 22 as a 15 year old. I think you need to go out, you need to find that inspiration and you need to absorb it as much as you can. But unless you sit there and question, you don't learn. I can listen to lots of things and think, no, I don't like that. But there might be something in there that just sparks, as there was with Wolfgang, lots of it, to be honest. It sparks the enthusiasm. Well, that's interesting. That's very interesting indeed. I never found that person. <laughs> I have to say, I wish I had. They just weren't around. I wish I'd found more than one. No, I know. No mentor of any sort at all, except myself, which wasn't a very good one. I think we've covered a lot of territory there. And you've taken us back into a world which most people wouldn't recognize. <laughs> I, I could take you even further back into a world that you wouldn't even know existed. 